Welcome back to the episode of Be Here for a While. How are you guys doing? How's your never-ending quarantine? Yeah? You feeling feeling good? Flying high, feeling mean? Did you purchase Adidas today that you thought were super cute when you got your hair done? Which we know from last episode. I'm feeling pretty good about my new hairstyle. But my uh, uh, Michelina, my my lovely hairstylist, um, was wearing these super cool Adidas uh, and she told me she got them, uh, at a discount and I was like, I'm going to order them now. Like I found them at a uh, discount still, but only like, like $20 more than hers were. Like she got it for like 44. I think I got mine for 66 or something, but still cheaper than a hundred or whatever they normally are. So I was all excited about them because they have a little platform in them, you know, cause uh, I'm short. Uh, eh, Mitch is maybe I don't know if she's if she's behind or not but I, I just noticed I was like oh I like those and I can see the hidden platform it's not like one of those not the sneakers that were popular like three years ago where it was like a full-on wedge you know in the shoe there was like we can see that it's you have a heel on we don't believe it's sneakers okay you're not wearing men's lifts um so anyways I just noticed like oh there it's thicker on the bottom than most Adidas so like these could be a good cash shoe for me and people will think I'm, you know, maybe 5'6". Although I used to lie about being 5'6 all the time when I was a print model. I was like, 5'6", 115? Woo! They're like, um, one of your rib bones weighs 115, Rachel. I was like, great point. Anyways, so I, uh, I, <laughs> I've, I've never weighed 150. I mean, maybe it's sometime in passing from third grade to adulthood I did. I've never looked at a scale and it said that, so I don't know. Anyways, so um, I uh, I order these shoes. They just arrived today and super excited to put them on. Put them on. My, my feet are kind of like sliding out of them a little bit. I was like, oh, I got to tighten them. Cool. It's not that the shoes are too big for my feet. I think they were just not fitting my feet properly until I tightened them. And so then I, I put them on and I was like, all right, go to the mirror. These are going to look great. And I was like... Why do my feet look like skis? Is it, maybe it's just, you know, we have a, we have a, a weird mirror here. It's a weird long mirror. And then, uh, then I decided to take one shoe off and put like another sneaker that I normally wear like next to it. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I, I look like I'm, I'm riding on a catam- catamaran with these shoes. Like they, I guess these specific Adidas are not meant for size nine feet. Uh, I looked like a fool. <sighs> so, moral of the story, gonna have to send those back. Was super excited about the deal and the gold detailing, but maybe it's the fact that they were like a white like shell toe and then they were a black shoe that it was like, oh, we think this long ass foot is gonna end at the black, but oh no, it keeps going into the ether. Into the ether, that white toe just keeps shining it on. So that was a bummer. Um, but I like those kind of bummers compared to the other ones that are going on right now. So I hope you guys are doing good. As always, I love connecting with you. If I if I miss a message, I really do try to respond to everyone. I I, I put in the most effort on it. And oftentimes, you guys are the ones that like absolutely brighten my day. And I... Just adore you. And also tag me in your Insta story when you're listening to the show. Cause like now that it's, I haven't asked that in a while, but now that it's, um, quarantine COVID era, like 
Are you not, are you driving in your car listening? Are you like sneaking into your closet and listening on speakerphone so your kids don't hear me say fuck? I don't know. Like what's the <laughs> Where are you listening? Tag me. I want to know and uh yeah, let me know that you are into it and uh, I love you. Okay. All right, now for my guest. This is part two of my two-hour-long conversation I had with the fabulous Jill Rosenzweig, who has had an incredible career as a lawyer and now a best-selling author, and she also has a legal podcast. Um, And then in this episode, though, we get into um, uh, her struggles with getting pregnant, and uh, I think that's something, at least if you're around my age, uh, we're starting to think about, like, you know, so I, uh, I was excited to like learn from her. I, I feel, I feel like I don't know a ton about the, the process and, uh, I really probably should start the process sooner rather than later, but you know, I was kind of hoping to like get married first, you know, I don't really care about a wedding, but you know, just <laughs> make Greg commit to me first. Um, <laughs> without further ado, give it up for part two of Jill Rosenzweig. Why did I just sound a, like a weird radio announcer? Whoa. Okay, so so then you okay, so then you you moved to New York. You, yes. you then spent what I think you said twenty years in uh, litigation or in, yeah, as a trial attorney. Total. Yeah, 20, a little less than twenty years. So I started in two thousand one, nine eleven, and I essentially have transitioned out of it in the past year or so. So oh, so that's very time. recent. Yeah, pretty recent. Yeah. Well, okay, that makes sense because the timeline didn't. When you said you were forty six, I was like, did you start? So it had to have been recent. I was trying trying to yeah, do the math recent. on that. Okay, yeah, very recent. So, what was the pivotal point? Uh, what made you want to walk away from, you know, being yeah. a travel attorney? But you still are clearly involved in law. Your podcast is about that. Yeah. Um, was it? When you met your husband, well, you met him a long time ago. I did kind of want to talk about like your like slight little dating experiences before you met the one. Cause I okay. like for my listeners to hear advice on like, you know, I've dated all the worst people ever. And you know, I finally dated a friend and that was, a, that's my advice. Uh, yeah. Like how, how you met the one for you. Funny. I actually, so this was very early blogging days, I actually had a blog about my dating and it was really fun. I loved dating. I loved it. I was not one of those people that hated it. I loved it so much. I thought I was so fun on dates. I was like, I am enjoying myself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. I loved, I I thought I was fun to be around. I got got a kick out of myself and (laughs) I wrote, so I was online. I was doing the dating online thing, which was Mm -hmm. not apps. This was pre-apps. Yeah, And I wrote, instead of talking about who I am or whatever, I wrote a list of things that I love to do. And one of the things that I said in my list was that I love karaoke. And so every guy would ask me to go out on karaoke dates. And it was really fun for me because I really did love karaoke and I, or bowling too. I'd go on these very fun, uh, sort of unsophisticated dates. It I love a good physical of, date though. Like I like an activity. Yeah. Like I don't want to just sit and have a cock. I mean, I, well, if it involves food, I'll sit and eat that I'm into. The, the but I don't want to just sit in a bar. I want an activity. Yeah. The bar, I don't mind the dinner. If you don't like the person, a long dinner can true. be brutal. That's and true. I had a yeah. few of those and those were really hard, but I, uh, I started to, 
I started this blog and I would write about my dating experiences and then it became, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, that even a bad date was a good date because it was a good story for me and I liked the yeah. story of it. So I dated tons of people. Um, some of my dating was crazy and a lot of it was very short lived, like one date, two dates, not long term things. I did have a few long term boyfriends, but when I got to New York, it was for the most part, a lot of just dating and dating and dating. And mm -hmm. I dated a guy right before I met my husband and he, him, I was really, I thought he and I had something and we, this is a crazy story. We were going out for maybe two months. It was very fast and furious within a couple of weeks. He was bringing me home to meet his parents and it was oh, wow. this whole very fast moving thing. I was like, this is amazing. And I was at an age at that point where I was looking to meet someone and get very serious and potentially get married. So for me, this was great. I was so happy. And we went away for New Year's Eve. My birthday is New Year's Eve. Oh, and we had a friend of mine staying at this house that the boyfriend it was his cousin's house in the Hamptons. It was this gorgeous house in the Hamptons that we were staying at. Mm -hmm. And my friend and his girlfriend were with us. And my friend was cooking a lot. And I thought he was being very nice. He was cooking all these meals for us, but he was kind of making a mess of the kitchen. And then when he cleaned up to leave, he put sheets in the washing machine trying to be nice. Anyway, my friend leaves with his girlfriend and the guy that I was dating essentially flips out on me and says that my friend was disrespecting him all weekend, was not treating the house properly. And he basically said, I need time to think. And then a few hours later, this is when we're back in the city already. I'd been working all day at my office and I kept trying to reach him and trying to reach him and he's not answering the phone. And then finally he says, we need to talk. And I said, okay. And I left my office to talk to him and he said, I'm done. I don't want to be with you. I can't be with someone who's been so disrespectful. You need to, you know, get your stuff. He had my bags with him. So I said, okay, well, I'm coming to get my stuff. And he said, well, I don't want you coming to get your stuff right now. And I said, well, I'm coming to get it anyway. And so he left my stuff sitting in the front entryway of this apartment in Soho where any person could have walked in and stolen my things. And he just left it sitting there. And it was such a brutal nasty breakup that it was the first time in a very long time when I said, you know what, I need a date. I need a break from the whole dating scene. I need yeah. time to just stop with the dating and sort of process this whole toxic situation with this guy. And so I was taking a break from dating and I stayed on this dating website just kind of for fun. I wasn't really looking to date anyone. And one night I get an instant message from this guy who ended up being my husband. And he said, Hey, how are you? We're sort of joking around. He asked me out. I said, fine, I'll go. It was the first person I'd gone out with in months. And I mm -hmm. went out with him. He was much younger than I was. And I did not think that it was anything. I thought it would just be a fun night out. And I went out to meet him. And the minute I met him, he came up to me. He was kind of in the darkness. It was this dark bar. And he came up kind of out of the shadows. And he walked up to me and hugged me. Before I even could really look at him, he was hugging uh -huh. me. And I felt his hug. And I knew in that moment that I would end up marrying him.
It was like an instant thing. I love that. Yeah. And he was like the first person where I wasn't analyzing his dating profile to make sure he was the right height and the right age and the right Mm -hmm. kind of job and all those things that I had in my mind. Um, none of that was part of the equation. I went out with him because I thought he seemed like a fun person. Mm-hmm. And and that was that, you know, we've been together ever since. How quickly after first meeting him did you guys get engaged and married? We moved in with each other after three months. Oh, that's we risky. Got <laughs> engaged, yeah. So we moved in super fast. And then it was about 10 and a half months after we met that he proposed. Oh. And then we got married a year later. Yeah, the engagement That's really cute. Was a normal period of time, but the rest of it was very, very fast. That's yeah. really cute. Well, I'm only saying it's risky because I've done that many times and it just didn't work out. So yeah, well, I was I was 33 when I met him. I was 33, and it was right around that time that my dad started saying things to me like, you know, it will. It's okay if you never get married. It's <laughs> not. You know, or he said, you know even if you don't find someone, you could still have kids. There are ways. Um, so it was those weird things where well, life's not like, over. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to die. It doesn't seem great. <laughs> it's so, so funny. I was right around that age where people were starting to get nervous for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also because in Canada where I grew up, everyone I knew was married. Everyone, yeah. everyone in New York. No, a lot of my friends were single in their Mm -hmm. 30s. But in Montreal, where I grew up, if you weren't married by the time you were 30, it was a problem. It was, you know, people were starting to get worried about you. That's so annoying in society. I hate that. I hate that people think like, and then then you have to feel this pressure and then it makes you feel bad about yourself. Like, hey, whatever happens, happens. Like you can really control stuff. Like even if like, and actually this is a good way to lead into your, uh, when you guys had kids, like even if like, it doesn't work. You should feel okay, at least societally and like family pressure wise. If your body can't produce children, you shouldn't feel horrible right. about yourself. I understand why it's just so devastating because you you want to be. I, I get that personally. Like you should be able to feel that, but yeah. you have the added stress of like, you know, oh, what does everyone think of me? Everyone else like. You know, yeah. whatever's meant to happen is meant to happen. I think it's, I mean, and maybe I'm just saying that because I haven't had kids yet and I should, um, and I want to, but, but, but at the same time, I do think like I was talking to my parents about this, uh, on the phone the other day because a friend of mine had just gotten, uh, diagnosed with Hashimoto's and she called me. It's actually, she's actually not even a close friend. She was like a podcast guest that we kind of like have communicated with, but she was panicking because she it's scary when they first tell you like oh you're gonna have a hard time conceiving with Hashimoto's or whatever and I hadn't thought about panicking in forever but it made me panic where I was like oh should I should I because I have Hashimoto's too so I was like should I be worried so I called my mom and I was like oh I feel a little weird that like I'm not worried and this girl just made me feel worried um and my parents did the whole suck it up thing it'll all be fine my dad was in the car too and I said back to him, I was like, but to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm not that worried in the sense of like, my life has led me to this point and, and if I waited too long or it's not that, it is what it is. Like, right. there's no point in hating yourself or hating your situation. Like, what are you going to gain from just hating the situation you're in? Just like, all right, maybe it wasn't the right thing for me. 
Right. You know, for sure. Figure out something else. Maybe you adopt, maybe you, whatever, or maybe yeah. you're just the cool aunt. Yeah. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. That, that leads me into you. Oh, damn it. Now I'm going to be worried now because now I'm thinking about your age. And then when you got married and tried to have kids, but. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> no I'm just joking. Like that. I, no, I'll make you feel better when we talk about it. Okay. I don't think it's specifically about my age. Okay. No. Yeah. So, so you guys got married and then, um, your first, your first child, you did IVF. Was it hard? Yeah. It was hard the first time. Okay. So explain that. Cause I was getting a little confused in the email. So yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. I gave you all sorts of rambling. No, it was perfect. It, it was, it made me compelled to be like, I like this person. I want to hear more. So we got married right before I turned 35 Mm -hmm. and we started trying to conceive about a year after that. And they say, when you're trying, you shouldn't start stressing about it for about a year. And oh, okay. They were like, don't, you know, just, you know, I talked to my OBGYN. She was like, don't even think about it. Just, you know, just do your thing. Don't worry. Within a few months of trying, I had this bad feeling. I just sensed it. I was like, I I feel like there's a problem. And I didn't want to wait around to figure it out for a whole year. So we went to a fertility clinic and we had all sorts of tests done. And it turned out that my husband was perfectly fine, which of course I should have been happy about, but it kind of felt horrible to be, you know, knowing that you're the reason why there's a totally, problem. Totally. I get that. Yeah. Like, why can't there be something wrong with you too? Um, so um, I had something called uh, diminished ovarian reserve, which in plain English means that you're, so you're born with all the eggs that you have, right? You uh-huh. have all of your eggs and my eggs were older than I was. So I was 36 and the doctor said I had the eggs of a 40 year old. So I had, why? So I had fewer eggs than I should have. Uh And the eggs that I did have. So over time, the quality of your eggs changes. So as you get older, the integrity of the eggs starts to, you know, change and, that's why it becomes harder and harder to have a baby mm-hmm. if that's your issue, if that's what's wrong. Some, you could have a bunch of other things wrong with you. But for me, that was the issue. It had to do with the quality of my eggs. So my egg quality was not that great. And the number of eggs I had left was not that great. And because of that, it was harder for me to have a baby. And so... Is the there doctor- any reason why, though, that... Ha- like, did they give you... It's just no. what it is? I it's usually a genetic thing. They don't yeah, really, okay. they had no, I wondered a lot. Did I do something wrong? They kept telling me no. Oh, of course not. Uh-huh. Not that. I'm just curious as to like, Oh, is it, is it, yeah. Is it a genetic thing? Is it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did think about, you know, maybe it had to do with the fact that I smoked cigarettes for seven years when I was a teenager. I did think, okay, maybe there's something that I did, but they kept telling me, no, no, that couldn't, not that long ago. That wouldn't do anything. Yeah. I don't know. You get in your head though, when you find out something's wrong, you start wondering, okay, well, is there something that I might've done in my past that caused this? But it really wasn't that. It just was one of those things. Mm -hmm. And um, they told me that they thought my best shot was just going straight to IVF. Um, And the thought in my mind at the time was that IVF felt so artificial mm-hmm. and 
I don't know why, but I just had such a strong feeling against it. It felt like too much of a jump from what I thought would happen to now this crazy thing where, you know, my eggs are in a lab and there's all this crazy stuff going on. And I'd always been terrified of needles. So the idea of taking needles all the time was really a lot for me. And so we started off very slowly doing IUIs, which is kind of like IVF light. And I did four rounds of IUIs. They were all unsuccessful. And as I kept doing them, I think I slowly started to come around to the idea that it didn't make sense to continuously do something that wasn't my best shot and continue to expose myself to all sorts of hormones and crazy medications instead of just doing the thing that gave me the best shot at at getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so after four rounds, I finally said, okay, let's do IVF. Um, I wish in a way that I just gone straight to it, but I think a lot of women and maybe men too, that are in these situations. But I think for women, you have it in your mind that you're going to have a baby a natural way. And the whole thing just feels so unnatural and so bizarre that it definitely took me time to get into that mindset that, okay, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, And so I finally, I did three rounds of IVF and the horrible thing about it was that every time I did IVF, I would get pregnant. So the first time I did IVF, I got pregnant and it never even occurred to me that it wouldn't work out. Literally the day I found out I was pregnant, we were calling all of our family, crying on the phone. We're having a baby. I was essentially naming the child in my mind. I was taking the subway in New York and talking to the baby saying, we're going on our first subway ride together. It was really bad. And then within maybe a week, because when you're going through fertility treatment, it's not like a normal pregnancy where you see the doctor every so often, or you don't go in for your first appointment for 10 weeks. When you're doing it through a fertility clinic, you're going into the office almost every day where they're tracking your blood work. They're checking, uh, you know, ultrasounds, they're doing all this stuff. Like every day, really? It was, I think every second day I was getting blood work done where they were measuring my hormonal levels to see that they were doubling to make sure that the embryo was continuing to grow in the way that it was supposed to. And I get a call one day and they said, I'm really sorry to let you know, but your number, the numbers didn't double. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, you know, we need your numbers to double and they're not doubling. So we're going to check again, come into the office tomorrow. We'll check again. And I said, well, what does this mean? I didn't even, never in my life did I expect this. Of course, then I'm on the internet trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I quickly realized that when your numbers are not doubling, it's a huge problem. And so I had essentially, I got pregnant and I miscarried before there was even a heartbeat. So in a way you can't even really count it on some level as a miscarriage, which is both good and bad. Almost going back to our talk, the discussion we had about when someone's really sick and they die, that there's sort of a hierarchy to it. So when you have a very, very early miscarriage, it's not seen in the same way as having a miscarriage when you're 25 weeks along. Right. Yeah. In a way I felt like, who am I to be upset? I, the ba- this baby was barely even anything before I lost it. And so I had very conflicting feelings about even feeling whether or not I had the right to feel upset about it. It was mm-hmm. very messed up. 
But for me, the baby was a huge miracle to begin with. And then to lose the pregnancy was horrifying. Yeah. And I, after that, I kept doing IVF, but my attitude changed tremendously. So I got pregnant again. That time I didn't get excited at all. I was just like, okay, I'm pregnant, but let's see what happens. And, and, again, and did the did the first time I I why well, I already know the story. Go ahead. I have to, No, I, go ahead. Well, did they was there any sur it was not was it not formed enough that there was no surgery or anything involved? I get a little confused about that all that no. all that stuff too. So it was super early, so I did not need any kind of Did you feel anything? Horrible. Yeah, it was horrible. It was a horrible pain. Um, almost like a period times a hundred. So it was really rough. It was really rough. Um, And then the second time it happened, I was better prepared for it. I sort of knew, okay, they said that your numbers aren't doubling. Okay. You know, this is what's going to happen. And I was sort of waiting for it and I knew what to expect. Um, But the first time was a shock and my husband wasn't at home when it happened and I remember thinking maybe I needed to go to the hospital. It was so painful that, you know, I thought this is really not okay. Um, but then the third time we did IVF, I, we did a different protocol. So when you're doing IVF, the doctor that you're working with puts you on all these different medications. And I had done two rounds of IVF with the exact same protocol. On the third one, she w- she said, you know, maybe we should switch it up and see if this is better for you. Mm-hmm. And it caused certain issues, which I'm not sure how much you want me to go into. But when you're when you have IVF, you have to have a certain thickness of your uterine lining because mm-hmm. when they implant the embryo back into you, the embryo needs to find the, li- the lining and stick to it. Mm-hmm. And if the lining is not thick enough the embryo can't stick to you and then it won't continue to grow into a baby. That's like the most simplistic way. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So the lining is something that can be manipulated by a doctor as you're leading up to your IVF procedure. And the protocol that I was on caused my lining to be very, very thin. And so it was the night before I was supposed to do my egg retrieval and my husband and I were literally walking around Brooklyn debating whether or not to just cancel the retrieval because my lining was so thin that we didn't think I'd be able to carry the pregnancy anyway. And so we had a huge debate. Do we cancel it? Do we not? I've already gone through 10 days of drugs. I've gone through all this stuff. But then again, the retrieval is very, very expensive. We were paying for a lot of this out of pocket. It was insanely expensive. And we'd gone all this way with it. So we said, okay, we'll see in the morning. They'll measure my lining again before the retrieval and see where it is. And we were going to make a last minute decision. We showed up for the retrieval. They measured my lining. My lining looked amazing. It was like overnight. It had gone from super thin to really thick overnight. We said, okay, we're going to do it. Let's go through with it. We did the retrieval. I had eight follicles. So follicles are like the sack that the egg is supposed to be sitting in. Mm -hmm. But I had this thing called empty follicle syndrome where there's a follicle, but then you go to get the egg out of it and there's nothing in there. So it was, there's just, I don't even understand how it works. 
I had empty, it was called empty follicle syndrome where they thought I'd have eight eggs to retrieve, but in reality, those follicles were empty. So I did not have as many eggs in there as they thought. So they went to retrieve my eggs. They went in, tried to get eight out. They only got one out. There was only one egg in there. That one egg fertilized. That one egg made it to five days out, which was the date that you had to get to in order to have the transfer to put it back in you, right? So mm -hmm. there was like the embryo, the embryo continued to grow. The embryo was a perfect grade on day five. So they score it to see how good it looks. It looked perfect. They put it back into me and that is my son. That's so, so cool. Yeah, it was a crazy situation because we almost canceled one. The, the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was, he was meant to be here. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So that was like insane. Um, and then after he was born, we wanted to have a second kid. We went back to the doctor to get tested. At that point, I was told that I was next to being completely infertile. Like I had, mm -hmm. they said you have maybe a 1% chance of having another child doing oh, wow. IVF not even naturally, but just IVF. So I don't know if you heard, this was years ago, uh, Juliana Rancic was doing fertility treatment and they discovered that she had breast cancer. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah, 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 I do. Okay. Lightly, but yeah. Yeah, so her doctor is considered the best fertility doctor in the country. Mm -hmm. He's in Colorado. I ended up flying out to Colorado and going to that doctor to see if he might be able to help me have a second kid. I was so desperate. And I was in New York where there were amazing fertility clinics, but I was like, you know, we need to go to the best of the best. So we went out to Colorado and I did three rounds there. None of them worked out again, miscarrying. And it was just a mess. And finally we decided to get an egg donor because that doctor in Colorado said to me, you know what, I think it's time to just say, forget it and think about a plan B because it's not working out with your eggs. So we made the difficult decision to get an egg donor. My husband was very unsure about doing it, but we were like, you know what, this is it. And I was honestly relieved on some level to be done doing fertility treatment. Mm -hmm. It put such a toll on me. Uh, I was just so sick from all the medication. I was super bloated. I looked like I was pregnant just from the drugs alone. My stomach was oh. like uh, sticking out. It was distended. It was crazy. So we got this egg donor from Israel to fly in. We didn't know who she was. She was now. Why was it, I was confused about that too. Like why was I, I was like, was it a religious thing or was it just, that's how you found why Israel? Is there not yeah. here? So I think that for me, I was obsessed with the idea of finding an egg donor who was as much like me as possible. So I wanted the kid, if we had a kid, I wanted the kid to look like me, have the same heritage as me mm -hmm. and found, I wasn't necessarily dead set on the egg donor being Jewish, mm -hmm. but I interviewed with this agency where all of her egg donors were from Israel. I think and I just realized my confusion. Sorry, I have to interrupt you because now I feel stupid. For whatever reason, I know there's a difference, but for whatever reason, I was thinking a surrogate, not an egg donor. So, Oh, no, no yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like you wanted it to be as much like you as possible. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because Sorry, I was, that was very stupid of me. I think I just like didn't think it through. Okay. No, no, not at all. Because it's not like if it's a, a surrogate is like a house, so it doesn't yeah. so much matter, right? But the egg this donor is actual, is yeah. literally your their genetic material. And wow, I, so that's a crazy to think through. Like, does the family have mental illness? What is going? Like, what is totally. the work? Their genetics? Are they diabetic in their family? Like, a hundred percent. And we got all of this person's history. We asked a million questions beyond what they normally provide. I asked so many questions because mm-hmm. I wanted to know all about this girl. Um, and she was like a better version of me. So. Oh, she looked so much like me. It was crazy. Um, but she was never, I saw pictures of her from the time she was a little girl until she was an adult mm-hmm. and she never had an awkward period, which was crazy. Oh, it must she, be nice. Right. <laughs> so she, she was always like thin and no acne and she looked amazing from the time she was a little girl. I want her eggs. Right. Can they put them in me so I can be thin? Yeah, she was, I mean, she didn't have glasses. She was vegan. She spent her free time volunteering. I mean, she Why the hell does she need to give up her eggs? She was doing it because she was this incredible person, which was crazy to me. And I was just so blown away by her. And I really wanted her to be our person. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was really okay with it. My husband was not, he was not really into it, but he was doing it because I really, really wanted a second kid. So he was sort of going along with the whole thing, but, um, he was really not into it. And we went ahead with it. The girl came, she came from Israel. She was in New York. She was in the middle of the whole process where she was taking the drugs every day so that she could have her egg retrieval. And we went out the night before the egg retrieval, we went on a date night. And while we were on the date night, I just suddenly felt super nauseous. And my husband said, well, why don't we go get a pregnancy test? And I thought he was kidding, but we uh-huh. went ahead with it anyway. And sure enough, I was pregnant. Um, and it was really, I mean, such a shock because we were told I couldn't have kids, really, even doing IVF. One percent. One percent. Yeah. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, as much as my son is a miracle, I feel like my daughter is even more so. So they obviously were your inspiration for writing a children's book. Yes. And how, okay. So first of all, I, I like started reading it. I was like, all right, children's book. And then I got like halfway through and I was like, why am I crying? (laughs) This is so, so like, it's weird how much children's books and children's movies translate to adults. It's like, it's almost the same like lessons. And I, so when I was in the early stages of reading it, you know, it's only like 35 pages, but when I read a couple of pages, I was like, I wonder how you get your brain to think this way. I don't think I could ever write a children's book. And then I was like, Oh, well maybe when I had kids, I could, you know, whatever. Um, But then once I got towards the end, I was like, Oh, this translates to adults, but how did you get in the mode of writing? Because I, I truly don't think if I didn't have kids and wasn't reading similar children's books often, I don't, I don't think I could sit down and write one. I think I would just not. How did you even get in the group of that? What was your inspiration? I, I agree with you. I think that reading children's books for years now, so I have an eight and a half year old. I've been reading children's books since he was born. 
And I think that the more you're exposed to them, you, the more you start to understand what you like about them and what you don't like. Mm-hmm. So I think that that helps a lot. And I, there are certain books of my kids that I absolutely love. But I think also just being a parent, you start to think about what lessons you want to impart. And it's kind of natural. It was natural for me to write the book because I was really going through it at that time when my kids were home in March. I mean, we, we sort of started talking to them about COVID in, I think, January or February. We told them, yeah, oh, there's this thing going on. And that's great. Could- that's early. Yeah, it is early. The thing is, so in February, we took a flight to Canada to go see my family. And I was already stressing about coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And we ended up getting masks to wear on the plane. And all four of us wore them the entire flight to Canada and all the way home. And we cleaned the whole area where we were sitting and everything. And we were the only people on the plane wearing masks and everyone thought there must have been something wrong with us. I mean, people were looking at us like we were freaks, but we told the kids why we said, there's a virus going around. We want to make sure that we're safe. So we were talking about it pretty early, but in March, my kids went to school one day and while they were at school, the school sent out an email saying, we're shutting the school down. We're oh, not wow. coming back. And it, it was, they said at the time that we, they thought we'd be shut, shut down for about a month. And wow. I said, wow. I, so I, I don't have kids in school, obviously. I assumed it was like a, like a process that, that, that would like took time. Like, all right, well, we're going to kind of watch this thing and we're going to see, it was just like, boom. No. A week before the school shut down, the uh-huh. school sent us an email saying, we're watching things closely. We're just trying to see what's going on. And the day that they shut down, was there was a carnival at school and the parents were talking to each other. I remember the parents sort of like gossiping away saying, when do you think that it might happen? Do you think that they're going to shut it down? When do you think? Everyone was kind of speculating. And I thought I was being, um, you know, crazy because I said, I think that it's going to shut down within the next week or so. I I said, I think maybe one more week. That same day, within about an hour of the carnival being over, we get an email saying, when you pick your kids up at school today, empty out their cubbies because we're not coming back for at least a month. Wow. And I had not prepared the kids at all for that. They had no idea that anything like that would happen. And I had to then have a conversation with them about the fact that school was closed and really talk to them about COVID. And it was a hard thing. They were suddenly home. We were suddenly thrust into this virtual learning situation And I was really trying to figure out how to talk to them about it. Of course, there were no books at all talking about coronavirus at the time because it was brand new. And I was looking at this article online about these families in the UK that were making rainbow art and putting it in their windows. Mm -hmm. And all these kids were sort of walking around the neighborhood going on almost like scavenger hunts where they were looking for rainbows in the windows and trying to see how many they could find. And I thought it was such a cute idea. And I live in an area in LA where there's a, like a, it's an historic preservation overlay zone and there's a little board. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote the guy that runs the board and said, 
I think it would be really great if we did something similar in our neighborhood. And he said, great, why don't you lead it? So I had to do a video where I was talking to everyone in the neighborhood about making rainbow art and putting it up in our windows. And then my daughter and I made art. We put a huge poster up in our window with a huge rainbow. And my daughter, who's only five, asked me, well, why are we doing this, mommy? And I explained to her, you know, people are out walking right now, but they're alone and they might be feeling really sad. And if they see rainbows in the window, it's going to make them feel better. And I explained to her that when you're feeling better, it actually lowers your stress levels. And when you're not so stressed out, it helps your body get stronger so that it can fight off a virus. Mm-hmm. And so she said to me, so are we helping protect people from coronavirus? And I said, yeah. And she felt so good about that that it then became a thing where we started to do other things where we were buying groceries for people and, you know, donating money to charity and dropping off food at people's homes and sending cards to friends and relatives. And it really helped my kids feel like they were doing something during the pandemic, as opposed to just sort of sitting at home and feeling helpless and like they're not part of the solution. And Such one a good day lesson I sat for down, your kids. Pardon? That's just such a good lesson for your kids. That's just, yeah, it's, sorry, keep going. For me, it's like, I think it's partly what I've done in my life mm-hmm. is, you know, not sitting around and feeling sorry for myself or the things that have happened in my life. Mm-hmm. I think that's been so helpful to me. Um, I think also when things feel really overwhelming in general, getting outside of yourself and helping other people, I think can really help you get through whatever it is you're going through. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think that applies to kids as well. I think that when it comes to parenting, I don't know if I'm doing it right or not, but I like to think about what helps me. And Mm -hmm. I assume that it'll help my kids too. Yeah. Use the same principles with my kids as I do with myself. And so giving them, a sense of purpose and making them feel like they're actually doing something to help has really helped them through the pandemic. And when I sat down the day that I wrote the book, I was actually planning on writing a part of my novel, which I try to do every day. I write a little bit of it and I sat down and I just started writing this story and it was really meant for my kids. I was just going to read it to them. And when I read it to them, they were so affected by it that I said to myself, you know what, why don't I just see if I can publish this thing? Um, But I'd never published a book before. So it was all completely new to me. I really had no idea what I was doing. And then did you just self-publish or you contacted a publisher or? So the first thing I did was I talked to a couple of people I know that have published books before. And they all said that when you go through a publisher, it could take at least a year to publish a book. It's a very slow oh. process. And so I knew I wanted to get the book out quickly. So I decided to self-publish, um, which isn't to say that I could have gotten it published with a traditional publisher. I have no idea. Yeah. It would have been but it was a timely issue too. It's about, uh, yeah. I, if I, if I didn't have, if time, if the timeliness wasn't an issue, I probably would have tried to get it published through a traditional publishing house. But because of the time frame that I wanted to get it out, I sort of discarded that idea very quickly and decided to self-publish. And I 
can't even tell you how I got through it because it was so many different things that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was almost the same as starting a podcast where I'm sure with you, when you started a podcast, you probably didn't really know much about what you were doing. Oh yeah. You just sort of figure it out as you go along. Totally. That's what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ended up number two on Amazon's wait, hot new release. What was yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, that was crazy because I didn't even know that was a thing. My father's wife found it on this list of, um, it was Amazon's hot new releases under the children's feelings and emotions category. Wow. And she sent me this link and she said, oh my God, look at this. And I couldn't believe it. I was really shocked. That's so cool. Yeah. It's really crazy. It's Um, shocking though. Like, I mean, I, I I guess I've only known you for, we podcasted for like two hours now almost, (laughs) but, uh, I guess I've only known you for this amount of time, but I, it's not shocking to me. I feel like you, you seem like a very emotionally wise person, a very empathetic person, but also a very intelligent person. Like I can see why it was successful. Like, yeah, I I think you have a very good head on your shoulders. Not that you need me to say that to you, but I appreciate that so much. But I do think going back to what you were asking me, I think that it's so important to, and I know people say this all the time, but I really do think it's true that the best thing to write about is something that you know. Mm-hmm. And that was something so personal that I was going through. Uh, and I think that's why it worked. Yeah. You know, I've tried writing things before where I'm just making things up and it doesn't yeah. work as well. It doesn't work as well. Totally. Yeah. But then sometimes though, if like something like, if something is too soon, sometimes that doesn't work. Meaning right. like you don't have like your full perspective on what the situation is. A hundred percent. Yeah. But, but I do believe you write what you know. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't want to take any more of your time because I've taken so much of it, but I would like to ask you if you would be willing to podcast again, because I really wanted to go into now your podcast and like the legal stuff you cover, considering I'm like super into true crime now and I have another true crime podcast. Like, I would love to just pick your brain on that stuff. And I think that my listeners would find that interesting as well. I would love that. You can pick any case and we'll talk about it. Okay, cool. Because I just love the way you covered. I mean, I only listened to that one, but I was like, yeah, I, I, at the end of it, I was like, I I don't know how I, because at first when I read the title, I was like, fuck you, they got to put signs on. Yeah. And then. By the end of it, I was like, oh, well, maybe it does make it more unsafe. Like, like I, I felt so much. So good. Right. You're doing a great job on your podcast. Thank you but, so much. Thank you. Yeah. And I know you were interested in Jeffrey Epstein and I did an episode about Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, I'm going to listen to that when we hang Epstein. up. <laughs> yeah, I've done a lot of those. Um, but I think that for me, even though I'm moving away from practicing law, I think a passion of mine is making sure that non-lawyers understand the law. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. I think that's a great way to like still have your passion and yeah, educate people because there's no, there's no way to know that kind of thing if you're not a lawyer. Like, again, I, I, I listen to true crime all day long and I pick up on certain things, but there's no way to know the ins and outs and why things are really decided that way. Cause it kind of makes you less biased. I think you said like, like it's, it's less of like, Oh, I've already decided how I feel about this because I don't like this person. It's like, well, there's a reason why the law is set up for that. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for doing this. Um, Tell all my listeners where they can find you, social media, your podcast, your book. Yes. Okay. Um, On social media, my Instagram is Jill Rosenzweig author. So Rosenzweig is R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-I-G. It's a little... It's a tough name. Yeah, I know. And I... I married into that name. My maiden name was so awesome that it's it's a little. What bit was it? Overland. Overland. It was, yeah, that's easier. Yeah, very easy. Um, my book is Bailey Bloom and the Battle of the Bug, and you can find it on Amazon. Um, I have a website for the book, and it's just JillRosenswag.com. And the podcast is The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. And you can find the podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So basically, if you look for Jill Rosenzweig, you'll find all my things. That's awesome. I recommend everyone to listen to the podcast. It's so interesting. But also, as an adult, read the book. Like, it lifted my spirit in a wonderful way. But-